the Cannabis Heals Me podcast, episode 26. You're listening to the Cannabis Heals Me podcast, where we explore the real stories of real people who have discovered the profound healing properties of the cannabis plant in their own lives. Find more at CannabisHealsMe.com. Cannabis Heals Me podcast is brought to you by The Grow CFO for all your cannabis accounting and tax needs. Find out more information at www.thegrowcfo.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Cannabis Heals Me podcast. This is your host, Rachel Kennerly, and we're broadcasting once again from the Storybook Inn Studios. If you haven't had a chance to listen to episode 25 with Charles Sewell, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to that podcast. Charles was diagnosed with HIV 20 years ago, and he's doing amazingly well for having that diagnosis. It was a very inspirational story to me, so I encourage you to go back, if you haven't already, and listen to that episode. I want to thank you so very much for being a listener and for coming back every time we put an episode out. The podcast is growing. Our our numbers go up with every episode we publish. So we really appreciate all of our faithful listeners that have been with us from the beginning. And the ones that have just started listening, we really appreciate everyone that's listening and sharing the show. We've been doing our Tell Three People Challenge for a few weeks now. And it really appears that is working. You guys putting the word out and telling your friends and family and companions and Facebook friends and coworkers, it's working. Our numbers are growing. We're seeing an increase with each episode that we put out. So I really appreciate you guys taking that challenge to heart and stepping out and sharing these episodes, even if it's scary or even if you're afraid that somebody's going to think you're a pothead if you share this show with them. So we really appreciate you guys spreading the word about the show. If you haven't shared the show yet, then what are you waiting for? There's no time like the present. We've had so many amazing guests. If you've just recently started listening, go back and catch up on some of those older episodes. The audio quality is not quite as good because I have a different mic now than I did back when I first started the first few episodes, but the content is amazing. I think some of the people that I spoke with in the past, they're just great people. So in case you just started listening to the show, I encourage you go back and catch up on some of those older episodes. Also, if you haven't done so already, go out to our website, CannabisHealsMe.com, and get signed up for our email newsletter. This gives us a way to contact you directly without having to worry about Instagram, Facebook, or any of the other social media platforms from banning us, shadow banning us, or just outright kicking us off their platform. So if you sign up for our email newsletter, we can communicate directly with you. We don't spam you. We usually send an email out before each episode is published, giving you a heads up on what's going to be in that episode. Other than that, you really don't hear from us. If there's something that we feel that is critical or we want to get out very quickly, the most direct way for us to do that is through our email list. So go out to CannabisHealsMe.com and sign up for that email newsletter. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to share a story with you from last week. 
After we published the episode with our guest, Doug Bench, who was diagnosed with COPD and used cannabis to treat his condition, a friend of mine reached out to me and said that she had a family member who had, within the last month, been diagnosed with COPD. So she was able to share this episode with her family member and say, look, you got to listen to this. And we've been able to put her in touch with Doug so that she can kind of learn more about his treatment regimen. That was so encouraging to me to know that what we're doing here is making making a difference. And it's not making a difference three months down the road. It's making an immediate impact. Obviously, I'm sad that her family member was diagnosed with this chronic and oftentimes terminal illness. But I'm glad that we were able to put her in touch with someone who could give her some alternative therapy information. And I don't want to say her name on the air, but I would encourage you guys to just be praying for this individual. It's scary to think that you've been diagnosed with the condition this way. So, just keep her in your, your prayers over the next few weeks and share the show. You never know whose life is going to be impacted by you sharing an episode of this podcast. Just wanted to share that piece of encouragement with you. It really blessed my soul and I, I hope it will encourage and bless you as well. Today's guest is Dr. Mary Ruart. Dr. Ruart spent almost 20 years working as a research scientist for the Upjohn Pharmaceutical Company. After leaving the Upjohn Company, Dr. Ruart started consulting for nutraceutical companies, clinical research organizations, and universities. She has also authored several books, the most recent of which is called Death by Regulation, How We Were Robbed of a Golden Age of Health and How We Can Reclaim It. In that book, Death by Regulation, which I read last year, and it's phenomenal. I highly recommend it to everyone who is listening today. So in that book, Dr. Ruart explored the impact the 1962 amendments to the Food and Drug Act have had on the health and well-being of Americans. It's something that she saw up close and personal during all those years that she spent working in the pharmaceutical industry. Dr. Ruart is so knowledgeable on this subject and a host of other topics, and she's an incredibly nice individual as well. We had a great conversation. I think you will enjoy today's episode, and I think it's going to leave you wanting to hear more from Dr. Ruart. So without further delay, let's give a hearty welcome to Dr. Mary Ruart. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here, Rachel. I had read your book on the FDA, Death by Regulation, and I enjoyed it. Well... I will say I enjoyed it, but it infuriated me at the same time to read what a debacle that they've kind of made up there. And the reason I've asked you to come on is because now, thanks to the 2018 Farm Bill, CBD oil, hemp-derived CBD oil, is now under the jurisdiction of the FDA. So I kind of wanted you to come on the podcast and talk to people about how the FDA works, and then also maybe talk about how now because of how the FDA works, how that's going to affect CBD going forward. Sure, sure. Well, you know, a lot changed in the FDA in 1962. It was given so much power over the pharmaceutical industry, and it was done in a way that allows the FDA to continue to add to the regulations. And this is important for CBD because obviously they're going to be adding specific regulations for that because it's a biological product. And biological products are much harder to get through the FDA than uh, like a chemical-based drug. And that's because in 1962, the regulations were changed and the FDA was told that they had to ensure 
that every drug on the market was effective. They weren't told how to do it, but the FDA decided it would be choosing a very stringent criteria. And that criteria at the time, when I was in the pharmaceutical industry, was that you had to have two US studies that had statistical significance against placebo at a 0.05 level, which is a fairly stringent criteria. And, and the reason that's important is because the time and expense of getting a drug to market usually depends on the effectiveness phase the most. That's the most expensive part. And in addition, CBD is going to have a difficult time even before that. And that's because a biological product, when you produce it, is not always exactly the same. You know, when you when you do a chemical, you can make sure it's always 99.9% pure or whatever purity you need. But when you have a biological product, every batch of the product is somewhat different. And yeah. if it doesn't meet the stringent <laughs> guidelines that the FDA likes to see, uh, you know, then you have a problem just in production before you even get to testing. And this is probably going to be the hardest part of the CD, CBD program compared to other drugs. Mm -hmm. In fact, I've consulted for companies in the past that were hoping to take a cannabis product to market. And this is before CBD was, you know, <laughs> legalized, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, and that was always our biggest problem was getting production to be exactly what we wanted it to be. And there is a company, a GW, um, that did take a, a cannabis-based product to market procedures, and, and probably many of your listeners are aware of this, and that was an issue that they had as well. And they figured out a way to do it, and that's why their product was able to get to market. So the first big hurdle for CBD is going to be getting through the analytical part of what the FDA requires, the purity, and make mm -hmm. sure that all the extra components that come along with CBD are basically the same in every product. Um, because if they aren't, it's going to be hard to get the FDA to say, yes, that's okay, we can go ahead. The next big hurdle, of course, that they're gonna have um, are the normal ones, the animal studies that precede the human trials. And then when they get to human trials, of course, that's a very expensive part. And to give you give your listeners some idea of what I mean by expensive, um, I, I'm sure your listeners probably haven't read my book, but in it I have a graph that shows that the costs of getting a drug from the lab bench to the marketplace are increasing exponentially, which means they're not just increasing in a straight line over mm -hmm. time. They're, they're increasing faster than a straight line over time. Yeah. And, and so cost is also going to be an issue. In fact, right now, only about three out of 10 marketed drugs recover their R&D costs, their research and development costs. And that's wow. mostly due, yeah, I mean, that's not too good. So no, that's terrible. So it's mostly due to um, uh, the regulations uh, and the, regulatory hoops that a drug has to jump through. It takes an average of about 13 or 14 years for a drug to get to market. That's another important thing to know. And it, and it might even take a little longer for uh, a CBD product if they have problems 
getting the purity the way they need it to be. So, so that's another issue. So these aren't products aren't going to be FDA approved Mm -hmm. for a long time. And what that means is that no manufacturer can go to doctors in their offices and say, Hey, we have a CBD product and it does this, this, and this because (laughs) manufacturers are forbidden to tell anyone, um, and especially doctors who might prescribe it, that their product does something like prevent seizures, for example, unless they have gone through this process and got FDA approval. So yeah, that's, that's one of the things that made me, well, everything I read in the book made me really mad, (laughs) but that's one of the things that really made me angry because that happened with, um, what is it the, that you can take to prevent birth defects? Folic acid, which is yes. a key vitamin. Yes, yes. Well, let me tell your listeners that story, and they can kind of get a feel of what they're up against here with CBD. You know, folic acid is a B vitamin. You know, it's something we get in foods. It's something you can take as a supplement. And in the early 1980s, there were several publications which showed that if young women of childbearing age took folic acid regularly, they would not have children with neural tube defects, which is a type of birth defect, which is extremely debilitating and often kills the child. Mm -hmm. Um, Spina bifida is one of them that your listeners might have heard of. Mm -hmm. And um, so the folic acid manufacturers, of course, wanted to tell the American public about this. In fact, yeah. in other countries, they not only were allowed to do that, <laughs> but the government actually told them. But in this case, in, in the U.S., the FDA said, no, folic acid manufacturers, if you talk about this, your folic acid becomes a drug. If you make a health claim, it's a drug. And then you have to go through all of these 14 years of regulations before you can say that. Well, Folic acid, of course, is is not a patented compound. It's been around forever. Mm-hmm. So, so they weren't allowed to do that. And then in the early 90s, the Center for Disease Control and other government agencies started telling young women, hey, you should be taking folic acid because you need it in the early stages of pregnancy when you might not even know you're pregnant. Yeah. And... The folic acid manufacturers were still told by the FDA that they could not advertise this effect. So, and then in the mid-90s, the FDA says, well, okay, we're going to have manufacturers of grain products supplement their grain products with folic acid. (laughs) So at least women will get it in their food. But of course, you don't know what you're getting, right? So that didn't work out too well. In other countries, meanwhile, this birth defect was was uh, quite quite a bit less because of the way they were handling it. Yeah. So this is the the thing that CBD oil is going to be up against, even though it's a natural product, even though there's a lot of safety data, uh, they will have trouble getting their product through without going through this 14-year process. And then if they don't want to go through the, or maybe they can't afford to go through this 14-year process, they can't even go and tell doctors about the health benefits of their product because of the FDA. That's right. They can't go to doctors. They can't put it on their website. In fact, (laughs) to show you how crazy this is, the FDA actually uh, went after walnut and cherry growers who were simply putting on their website 
that these products had vitamins and nutrients in them that had shown in published medical studies to be helpful to your health. Mm-hmm. And the FDA wrote them warning letters and said, if you don't take that stuff off your website, you're going to have to uh, go through this 14-year process before you can say those things. <laughs> yeah, because you see a lot of people with CBD products, they'll say this does blah, blah, blah. Right. Well, here's the here's what here's what's good. The FDA can't keep track of everything. Mm-hmm. So a lot of manufacturers out there do make claims for their CBD products. If the government wanted to sue them, they would have a slam dunk. But there's so many out there, it's very difficult to do. So, but this, but now that it's been legalized, it wouldn't surprise me. The way the way the FDA works, it's probably going to make a special effort to regulate those products, and and that means they will be coming after people. There there are many situations in which uh, the FDA has gone up against these companies, and usually, just the cost of litigation is enough to kill the company. It's been very, in fact, many people were put out of business in the 1980s because the FDA had its own SWAT team. Wow. Do they still have their own SWAT team? Well, I don't know. I haven't seen them take action in a long time, so maybe not. (laughs) Wow. Well, I know right around the same time that the Farm Bill passed, a lot of companies had, like CBD and hemp companies had, Facebook pages and right around the same time like like within a couple of weeks after the the hemp bill passed they the farm bill sorry the farm bill passed there these face Facebook came in and shut down these hemp and CBD product pages and I don't know if that was just a coincidence as far as the timing or if maybe the FDA was behind some of that yeah I can't tell you I do know that the agencies cooperate to some extent so it's hard to tell I was listening to another podcast not too long ago, and it's it's a, an all about hemp podcast. And one of the things that they had talked about with regard to the FDA regulating CBD is that they thought, just not based on anything, they just thought, well, the FDA may regulate it kind of, they may handle CBD kind of in the same way that they handle a product uh, called red yeast hmm. or a, an item, something called red yeast. And I didn't know if you had any thoughts on that. No, I haven't followed the red yeast story. Okay. Something about if it's like in certain concentrations, then it's, I don't know. A food? <laughs> yeah, it I could be considered a food. That that would not surprise me um, for the red yeast because actually yeast is considered a food product. And, you know, I don't know where the FDA draws the line on that. Usually where they draw the line is if you make a health claim. So if you say red yeast will cure your cancer, for example, then then you can get into trouble. But um, like I said, the FDA doesn't have, uh, luckily for us in a way, doesn't have enough enforcement power to really do everything they're trying to do. Because if they had their way, anybody who made a health claim for anything would get into trouble. And and I, as an expert witness, I even once testified, and this is the truth, if the bottled water companies made a claim that their water could prevent or treat dehydration, uh, they could probably be taken to court. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> we all know this, right? <clears throat> now, there are a few things that they've kind of grandfathered in. Um, as far as I know, that's not one of them. But 
and, and I don't think the FDA would ever take them to court on that um, uh, just because of the publicity angle. <laughs> but technically, by the way the FDA is operating today, that would be against the law. Well, I know like on Cheerios, it'll, on some boxes of Cheer- Cheerios, it'll say has been, can reduce cholesterol or something like that. seems like the FDA would take them to task over that. Ah, uh, they did. They sent a warning letter to Cheerios and then uh, backed off after a few years. I don't know what kind of deal was cut there. <laughs> yeah. Probably had, probably had to do with large sums of money. <laughs> now you had mentioned a little while ago about cannabis, and I'm shifting gears a little because we were talking about CBD oil and hemp, but I I do want to shift gears a little, and you had mentioned that cannabis was actually in the pharmacopoeia before, prior to prohibition, so I didn't know if you wanted to speak on that for a little bit. Yes, actually, in the early 1900s, doctors used cannabis quite a bit for a number of medicinal purposes, so the pharmacopoeia that you're referring to is a large book of all the drugs that are available for doctors to use. And so cannabis was in there back in the 1930s. And then, of course, when prohibition started, uh, it was taken out. And there's an interesting history on this, because when the government was considering, uh, basically what they did is had the Marijuana Tax Act, which made it so prohibitively uh, dangerous to to have even a little, uh, you know, just a little bit of uh, active marijuana in their hemp fields. Then uh, you know they they were taxed so brutally that nobody wanted to do it, and and the doctors were very concerned because even though it was for hemp, they were told that oh marijuana would still be okay. They could still use it in their patients, and then of course what ended up happening is. Nobody was growing legally growing um, hemp or marijuana anymore. So the doctors are very upset with this because it was a very valuable tool for them. And back then there weren't as many drugs as there are today. So mm-hmm. they were using mostly biological products, in fact. So they were very upset about this. They felt they had been betrayed. And of course they were. And then I, I'm, I, I don't know if your listeners know this history or not, but in World War II, the the plastics and polymers and and artificial ropes and things that we use today they they weren't around and desperate there was a desperate need for very strong ropes and canvases and things like that for the navy so the government reversed itself and started begging farmers to grow hemp so that could have these products so they could fight in World War II. And the farmers responded and did. And then right after World War II, they shut them down again. And uh, yeah, and, and so one the states that really were growing hemp for World War II still have a lot of like wild hemp around. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's, it's really crazy. In fact, my father fought in World War II. Mm-hmm. And I remember we had a hammock made out of hemp. And it lasted forever. I mean, I think we played on it for, oh, you know, 15, 20 years after the war and and eventually uh, passed it around (laughs) when we were older uh, and then eventually gave it away and it was still intact. Wow. (laughs) I mean, this stuff lasts forever. And, And of course, you know, a lot of the early documents in our country were made on hemp paper. 
And one of the reasons that hemp was outlawed, at least according to uh, researchers in this field, was that the people who had the uh, wood pulp manufacturing and the forests that supplied it tried to, this was the way they put them out of business. And this is something's commonly done in government is to put your competitors out of business by outlawing their product, making it too expensive, you know, whatever. Yeah, wasn't that uh, William Randolph Hearst? Yes, that that's right. And and actually, um, Ray Carr um, has a, a whole history of this, uh, a little video on my website. If you're listening, you want to go and check that out. My website's ruart.com. Okay. R-U-W-A-R-T.com. And uh, they just need to go to the free library, or actually they might just be able to click on the video links because I think it's it's there in both places. Okay. Well, we'll put links to both your website and then also that video out on the show notes page for today's episode. Do you have any other links off the top of your head that you could think would be good for our listeners as far as education goes? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, if they want to go into my free library or um, they might, they have, they can look at copies of things like my book, Healing Our World. Um, there are some blurbs on death by regulation in my blog. So if they, the front, when they go there, the front page has blogs. And, you know, it only has a few up. But if they click on more blogs, there's a lot of material on death by regulation. And they might be more interested in learning more on that, given that it affects us at so many levels. Yeah, that was the, when I read the book, that was one of the things that frustrated me so much is, you know, everybody always complains about, how expensive it is to to buy prescription drugs and how terrible these drug manufacturers are for charging so much money for their products. And, and it all goes back to government regulation. Yes, yes. It's the cost of development. Nobody talks about this. I'm actually kind of surprised, but it's sort of hidden. Unless you're in the industry, you probably wouldn't even suspect that's the cause. And of course, in Death by Regulation, I have a graph showing that there is a direct correlation between how much we pay at the pharmacy and how much the costs of development are. And as those costs of development have gone up, uh, of course, our pharmaceutical prices have as well. And there's really, because it costs so much to bring drugs to the market, it's really incentivized drug companies because, you know, if you don't find a, a financially successful product, you're not going to be in business very long. It's It's kind of incentivized them to create products that people are going to be on for long-term usage as opposed to you take this pill for three months and you're done. That's right. That's right. And, you know, this is this is very bad for our health because our bodies can handle something for three months, usually, uh, a normal body. But three decades is a whole different story. It depletes certain nutrients in the detoxification process, and, and then that has other implications for your health. You know, in other words, if you if you deplete your nutrients and you aren't getting enough of them to counteract that, which you usually aren't if you're taking a drug, then you have problems. In fact, the statins do this. The statins deplete coenzyme Q. So basically, if, you, if that's something your body makes, and and if you know the best cardiologists always are telling their patients to take coenzyme Q along with their statins because it prevents the side effects of statins, the muscle weaknesses and things like that. Uh, ironically, the FDA actually tried to put the people in jail who first brought coenzyme Q to this country. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and so that was uh, very sad. That was the Life Extension Foundation. And 
they tried to put their founders in jail and they were the first people who really successfully fought the FDA on uh, the, you know, bringing a nutrient into the country and, and uh, um, defeating the FDA, even though they were told by their attorneys there was no way to defeat the FDA and they should probably serve their prison sentence, plea it down. Wow serve their prison sentence, but they said, no way. <laughs> and, and, and this is a great organization actually for your listeners because it, it talks about, it talks about how to use nutrients and drugs, um, in different ways to prevent and heal disease. And they can get away with this because the FDA <laughs> won't touch them anymore. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yes. So, um, so, you know, it's lifeextension.com. Okay. Uh, for those of your listeners who want to look into that, I think that's a, a very good resource, a one-stop resource, the best one I know. And it, it explains the science in a way that lay people can understand. So you don't have to just take their word for it. It has references for all the medical papers and stuff. So if you want to get into it, you can. If you want to just figure out what's going on, you can. And something they have um, are disease protocols. So if you have a particular problem, the nice thing is you can go there and read what their the protocols they've put together for both drugs and nutrients, and you can get a good feel of, you know, another way to proceed. A lot of this information the doctors don't have, again, because of the FDA to a large extent, because obviously people who sell nutrients are not permitted legally to go and talk to the doctors. In fact, for things like fish oil, which, you know, a lot of people are taking, which is a great product, um, they, you know, the people who have the purest fish oil aren't allowed to go to the doctors and say, our fish oil is even purer than prescription fish oil. And Life Extension does carry a pure product. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a good way to go. <laughs> okay. Well, that, I'll certainly include that link as well. One thing that I hear, it's kind of a common thing among people where cannabis has been legalized for medical or recreational use, but mostly rec uh, medical use, is, well, we really need more government regulation. And as someone who's more liberty-minded and having read your book, my thought is, no, we don't need more government regulation. We need a free market solution. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't know if there are any if you're aware of any entities out there that are kind of doing certification processes or, you know, something that could be adapted to the cannabis industry, it's kind of a model for the cannabis industry to follow instead of relying on the government to regulate them. Yes, actually consumerslab.com. I think they, I think they actually had an article on CBD recently. They're one of the certifiers and what they do is they look at different vitamins products and I don't think they look at drugs, but they do look at vitamin products. And so they review different products and tell consumers, you know, which ones actually have what the label has, what the label claims, which ones actually have that, and which ones don't. <laughs> and and they then they do a review on what the medical literature is on these products as well. So they're a real good place to go. Okay. And there's, it's, isn't there like a, a an entity that does, it's like a, the non GMO foundation or something like that, that like products that are organic, they'll have that label as well or something. Yes, there are. And I, I'm sorry, I can't put my 
finger on that right now. Um, I do. I, I know there are some out there, but I haven't I haven't followed them as closely. If you'd like, I can maybe do a little research after the show and send you some links. <laughs> oh, I can I can look that up. You you probably have lots to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to think of a, a a better way for for people to know that they're getting safe product instead mm-hmm. of relying on the government to regulate it because sure. they you know anytime you get the government involved, one they don't know what they're doing, and, and then they just make things more expensive and make it worse it seems like right well that's one reason i like to buy my nutrients from life extension foundation because they actually kind of started certifying their own drugs they would or not drugs so nutrients they sent them to uh um, a place that does the analysis and made sure that you know what the manufacturer you know because obviously they have Sub, they subcontract some of this to other manufacturers. They made sure that they had in their product what was on the label. So, um, you know, if you want to be sure that what you're getting is high quality and actually is in the label, I do, I do like life extension. Okay. Well, is there anything else that you can think of that people might benefit from knowing about the FDA? Well, but yeah, the one thing, this is, You know, these 62 amendments to the Food and Drug Act that we've talked about earlier, they really changed everything before. And and I think it's important for your listeners to know this because we we tend to think the FDA tests drugs. It doesn't test any drugs. What it does is it tells the manufacturer which tests it wants. And, and so before 1962, it took about four years for a drug to get from the lab bench to the marketplace. And then after the amendments, it rose until by the 1980s, it was this 14, 13 to 14 year time frame. So the problem here is a lot of people die waiting for life-saving drugs. And if, if your listeners watched the Dallas Buyers Club, they saw how this worked. Because during the AIDS epidemic, and I was working on research in AIDS in my pharmaceutical days, you know, the AIDS patients quickly figured out they couldn't wait <laughs> this long. Yeah, for for a new drug, right? So they went to the black market. They hired chemists to make the drugs, the very drugs we were working on and testing first in animals and doing all this elaborate stuff for the FDA. And they distributed them throughout the AIDS community and actually did a pretty good job because they did try to keep track of side effects and things and share that information. So today, because of this long time lag, there are people who are going into their kitchen and trying to make drugs. And, and this is very sad. Why should they have to do that? That that just, these people are really suffering. So, you know, I, I guess the message I want to leave with your listeners is more regulation is not always better. In fact, regulation tends not to be better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in states that have more regulation for dentists, the oral hygiene is poorer. Um, the, the states that have more regulation for optometrists have more blindness. Uh, wow. Yes, states that have more regulation for electricians have more accidental electrocutions. And the reason is that when you, when you regulate something, you are making the bar so high that some people can't jump over it. And so you have fewer practitioners or fewer products. And because you have less competition, uh, the people who do get through that hoop can charge much more than they 
they ordinarily would have because they have no competition. And of course, because the cost of getting that license or getting that approval is so high. So they charge these high fees and people go, I can't afford this. So they don't go to the optometrist. They don't go to their dentist. They try to do their electrical uh, repairs themselves or they don't do them at all. And, and so instead of getting higher quality service, we actually get less. So this is, this is something to think about when thinking about regulation. And it's an important thing for the CBD industry because there can be a tendency to say, yeah, let's regulate it. So, you know, uh, we have the superior product, so let's regulate it so the other mm-hmm. can't get through. But there's a price to be paid and the pharmaceutical industry is paying it now because now their products are so high priced People can't afford them. And as we talked about earlier, only three out of 10 products even make up their research and development costs. The whole industry is now depending on blockbusters. And that's a very dangerous place for an industry to be. You know, they've had a lot of mergers and stuff to try to make up for all of this expense, but it can only go so far. So you want to really think carefully before, you know, the CBD industry, I guess is what I'm saying, wants to think really carefully before they start clamoring for regulation to put their competitors out of business, because what you do to others comes kind of comes back to haunt you in the end. Well, I think the argument is there's so much snake oil, there's so many snake oil salesmen out there saying CBD, their CBD does this, when in fact, it's just junk. Mm-hmm. You know, the people that are doing it right, they're trying to figure out some way to put those guys out of business because they all, you know, want the bad apples ruin the whole batch. Yes, yes. And the way to go is certification. You know, let everybody send their product to a certifier and get their seal of approval. And then consumers can decide, oh, I'm going to buy something with a seal of approval because I know it's good. Or they can, if they want to try the snake oil, they can. And by the way, snake oil gets a bad rap all the time, but I love to tell this little story. (laughs) Snake oil was actually good stuff. (laughs) It was the fish fish oil of its day. Um, You know, if you weren't taking cod liver oil, which was obviously horrible uh, in terms of taste and everything, then snake oil was a good substitute. And studies today show that snake oil actually uh, keeps rats swimming longer than fish oil does, uh, which is a way of testing their endurance. So what that means is that there's something in snake oil that's actually very beneficial. So (laughs) the snake oil salesman actually had something going that actually helped people. So (laughs) maybe it was the cod liver oil salesman that didn't. (laughs) (laughs) So you know, it's it well. You know, cod liver oil was the fish oil of its day, and and uh, you know, it's of course people who took it were benefiting by it too. Of course, the thing about fish oil, I just want to remind your listeners, you know, not all of it's created equal. Some of it has lots of contaminants. Some of it isn't stored properly and has things that deteriorate and create health problems. So be sure and get high quality fish oil. Don't settle for the bad stuff. And again, I I recommend Life Extension for that. There's another manufacturer. Uh, um, from the zonediet.com, Dr. Barry Sears, who I know personally, uh, actually, I think he, I don't know this for sure. Well, I shouldn't say it because I don't know it for sure, but I think his product and life extensions are similar. So um, zonediet.com, another place to go. And actually the zone diet is a, is a great all-purpose diet that helps keep silent inflammation down. He's the first one who talked about that for those of you uh, out there who 
uh, know about that stuff. And uh, he's also the one who's put maki berries on the market and maki berry powder. So and it, I've it was, never even heard of that. Oh, yeah. It's a high, very high antioxidant berry. And that's why, you know, he's done that. It's It's got a lot of the polyphenols that are so helpful. And of course, it's a mix, just like most food products are. So uh, and he can't make any claims for it. And he can't go and tell the doctors that his fish oil is actually more pure than the prescription fish oil because, of course, he hasn't gone through the 14 years or so of jumping through regulatory hoops. But very good product. So there's actually fish oil that's prescription? Yes. What happened is, okay, so fish oil is such a great product. And I could I could go into the science, but I, I know that's a little... <laughs> A little more than we want to do here. Probably above my head, too. <laughs> okay, well, okay. So fish oil is a really great product because it balances, actually, maybe maybe we can relate this to CBD. Because, mm -hmm. um, okay, so, so there's something called prostaglandins or eicosanides that your body makes, and there's good and bad ones, and our American diet doesn't let us make the good ones. Fish oil helps us make the good ones. And this whole, whole process is linked to the endocannabinoid pathway, which is, of course, okay. you know, what uh, uh, what marijuana uses. Uh, so, you know, it is linked somewhat. But the bottom line here is that, um, you know, you want to take fish oil, uh, probably, and you want to take the pure stuff. So this is why I'm kind of going into this. And so companies got excited about this because they realized it was lowering triglycerides, which is a blood fat that can precipitate heart disease. So they put another chemical onto the fish oil. Your body removes it. And they went to the FDA, two companies did this, went to the FDA and said, so you can, now you can approve our product because we've done the studies and, and they felt it would be a good deal. And it's actually a good deal for them because now doctors will prescribe these fish oil products. But they're so expensive mm -hmm. because they've gone through this huge process. My sister checked in because she was eligible for it. And what she found is her copay was about the same as it would be if she bought the good fish oil. <laughs> on the on the you know on the open market as opposed to just prescription fish oil. So they just added something to it, and then the body removes it. So basically, you're just getting fish oil. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. So this is these are the kind of very expensive workarounds that companies have to do to get a natural product on the market today. Right, and then that prevents the actual natural product from being able to go out and say, "Hey, this is good stuff. You should. It does." Da 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 da. That's right. That's right. So it's just very convoluted. So again, um, you know, and and these regulations that do these things, they're they're very bad for our health. I mean, just the delays and loss of innovation that we've experienced as people move their funds from research to development. That's probably taken five years off each of our lives. Yeah. And the whole well, and you you mentioned in your book about a, a product that or a uh, a drug that you had kind of discovered mm -hmm. and but the and it would help a certain sect of people but it was such a small sliver of the population that your company wouldn't pursue it because it wouldn't be profitable. Well, it wasn't only that, that it was small. I mean, it was liver disease. And I was using a prostaglandin, which we just talked about. <laughs> it was it had a special chemical group on it, so it'd stay in the body a long time because in the natural state, prostaglandins just are metabolized by the body. But the and the FDA actually called me up 
and said, Dr. Ruart, we are so excited about this because you have, you've just filed a patent for prostaglandins and liver disease. And, and we're so excited because there's nothing to treat liver disease. But jumping through the hoops <laughs> um, would have taken so long. And, and the thing is, we didn't know when you have a really new product, you don't know how much to give. You don't know how often you have to give it. You don't know how long you have to give it for. And if you guess wrong on any of those, your study will not have the statistical significance that the FDA requires. You have to start over. And then by the time you're done, you don't have any patent protection. There's no hope of recovering your costs. And that's why the company decided not to do it. Yeah. Well, that's the, you know, a lot of people because our, our bodies, things work differently with our bodies. And especially what I've seen with like CBD and, and THC, some people need a high CBD, some people need a high THC. So it takes them like a year to figure out what strain or what percentages they need to address the complication of the condition that they have in their own body. And I would imagine the same would be true for chemical-based products. Yes, sometimes what works for one person doesn't work for another, which is why we have all these drugs that people often say are me too drugs. Well, they're not really me too. They're just slightly different, different enough that some people really benefit from one, but not the other. So it's a, it's an important part of the pharmacy chest, you know, of the pharmacy shelf that, you know, you can access. Same thing with the THC and the CBD and the ratios. I'm sure all that, you know, is going to have a, everybody's different, you know, everybody's different in what they need. Right. And that's because of the statistical significance. That's a pretty hard hurdle to pass in the in the world of pharmaceuticals, I would imagine. Yes, especially because our science isn't good enough for us to determine. We don't know in advance who's going to benefit. Right. So we throw all these people together and maybe only 10 percent will benefit, but the benefit will be very high. That doesn't necessarily show up in the statistics. So this is another problem with using that approach. So the 10% that's helped, that's not a high enough threshold so that drug can't come to market because it only helped 10%. Yeah, that could happen. I mean, the statistics could show that it's not significant. So that's another whole wrinkle in this thing. Right. But for that 10%, it's very significant to yes. them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Dr. Ruert, I really appreciate your time. We could talk about a host of other things for a long, long time, but I know you've got things that you need to do. And I don't want to take advantage of your, your offer of time this morning, but I really appreciate you kind of informing people on how the FDA works and how regulation does not always make us safer. Well, I, I like being here and sharing this information because, you know, that's something that affects all of us. It's truly a matter of life or death. Yeah, not to be hyperbolic, but it, it is true. That's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, maybe we can do it again sometime. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'll think of something else that we can have another conversation about. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Ruart. Oh, well, thank you. And uh, good day to your listeners. Many thanks to Dr. Ruart for coming on the podcast today. Really enjoyed that conversation. You can go out to the show notes page at CannabisHealsMe.com slash 26 and find links to all the websites that she mentioned during her conversation today. As I mentioned previously, I highly recommend her book, Death by Regulation. It will give you a little more insight into how government regulation works. And maybe we don't really want to ask for more regulation in the cannabis space. So go check out Dr. Ruart's book. Check out our website and all the other links that we mentioned in today's show. We'll be back on Monday bringing you another interview. Until then, y'all have a great weekend. Bye-bye.
Hit the subscribe button and you'll never miss an episode of the Cannabis Heals Me podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider leaving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or whatever podcast app you're using. Do you have a suggestion for a guest on Cannabis Heals Me? Send an email to podcast at CannabisHealsMe.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please do not take any information from Cannabis Heals Me or its guests as medical advice. Contact your licensed physician before taking cannabis or using it for medical treatments. 